back to the fifth and final episode of Psych Mike. Today, we're talking about attachment theories with special guest Samina Whale. So I'll hand it over to Felicity and Emerson. Thank you so much for coming, Samina. Could you please introduce yourself? Thank you, Emerson and Felicity, for inviting me to this um, forum. Just a bit of a background to my um, discipline and interest in psychology. I have uh, been in private practice and in public service for the last 30 years. I worked there in a public sector for about 22 continuous years, and I was running three practices as well at the same time. So uh, most of my work has been in the child and youth mental health domain. I have worked with adults in my private practice, and it has actually helped me to maintain my interest in the discipline, because when you are working with children and young people, you're actually not just working with one person, you're working with different systems. So you work with the education system, you work with the family system, uh, you work with the friendship network system, and it is a lot more harder to navigate all these different systems. And when you see an adult client in the private practice who comes voluntarily and they have difficulties, it's so much more simpler. Mm -hmm. So kind of I've really kept my interest because of both the complexity of the clients in child youth mental health service and also balancing it with some more straightforward presentations. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Savina. I guess we are here to talk about attachment styles because it has recently become a lot more popular in uh, media, especially, I think, with Gen Z. Um, I think on TikTok, we talk a lot more about, oh, what type of attachment style are you are, um, whether you're anxious attachment or avoidant attachment, and kind of how that translates into romantic relationships in particular. As you can imagine, there's something that people talk about a lot online. And I guess just to bring like all of us up to speed as well as the audience, I think our current understanding of what attachment style is, is that, you know, when you're at a young age, the way that you kind of learn um, how to form attachments with your parents or your primary caregivers and what you kind of learn is an attachment behavior that works. For example, if your parent kind of leaves a room, if you make a tantrum or if you're really quiet or uh, if you learn that nothing really works to bring them back, that then kind of consolidates and becomes a behavior that is attachment behavior in the future when you're an adult. Um, that is my understanding according to popular media and TikTok. So obviously feel free to correct us as well. But because it is such like a big theory that is applicable to so many relationships, so many parts of our lives. I think attachment styles has become more almost like a trend or like a fad, um, almost like horoscopes, you know, of people like look at, oh, what type of sign are you? How does that work with compatibility and that kind of things? Um, I'll be really interested to hear on your perspective how valid that kind of is or how much of what I just said is completely wrong and completely not the theory at all um, and not how you kind of see it being applied. Well, I guess one of the things about uh, what you're saying, that it has become a bit more like a fad and all that, I think that actually really speaks to the fact that there's a lot more awareness about psychological uh, processes that take place in a person's life. So maybe like, you know, maybe three, four dec decades ago, people wouldn't really be talking about attachment as such. Similarly, like these days, because there's more awareness, people are talking a lot more about autism. Like, you know, 40 years ago, ASD diagnosis was very rare, but now you would find that there's a huge increase in that. So in some ways, I, I, I'm pleased to, you know, hear that it is a popular, like in a pop psychology way, it's been becoming more common. Having said that, I think it has a really strong scientific basis. And in my practice, in my ther uh, therapy sessions, I am also quite pleasantly surprised that people often say, 
these things have been happening for a long time to me, or I really want to talk about my early childhood experiences. So they're becoming more cognizant of the of the, the things that they had experienced in life and they're relating it back to their early years. And we know attachment is formed in the first four or five years of, of a person's life. Um, so I, I do think that there is a rigorous, not maybe not currently because society is undergoing so much change. So maybe the, I suppose the parameters of research are different. The paradigms of research are different. We might have to look at other kinds of attachments as well, and other than mother, infant, child, which is the orig origin of attachment theory. So I, I do think that it is still relevant. It is still very important. It is becoming more common knowledge, which shows the, the awareness of people and the knowledge around it. I think it's so interesting that you did bring up how our awareness of like our psychological processes has increased so much. Um, I think I saw this article talking about how attachment style theory has become so much more popular. And I think a big part was like TikTok trend cycle, but also during lockdown, um, we had so much more time for ourselves to kind of think about how we're going, checking with ourselves and so much more emphasis put on mental health. And I think that those two years, especially in Melbourne, where you know, lockdowns were so, you know, widespreading. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it really created good conditions for us to always reflect and introspect a bit more and form those habits where we're kind of assessing our own relationships and assessing our own attachment styles, for example. I think in general, um, awareness of mental health conditions has increased and especially over COVID, I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people have taken that time to reflect upon their own experiences and perhaps their own attachment styles um, whilst in isolation. So it's no surprise that this conversation is entering everyone's daily lives a little bit more, um, even if it is through perhaps less reliable sources like social media, the awareness is definitely still there. So I'm really interested in how attachment styles form during childhood and how they can manifest later on in life, particularly for something like separation anxiety, which um, I have had experience with myself as a young person. So I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, separation anxiety is, I guess, one of the mental states or a person's you know, emotional state that is quite directly linked with the attachment styles. And um, we know the attachment essentially uh, is two of two different kinds. One is secure attachment, one is insecure attachment. And within insecure attachment, then there is an ambivalent insecure attachment and there is avoidant secure attachment. So normally, uh, separation anxiety is related to more ambivalent um, secure attachment. And the basis of that generally that is listed is that the parent might be perhaps sporadically unavailable at times. They may be very busy, they may be away, they may have uh, health conditions that require them to be hospitalized, um, or they may be undergoing some personal other trauma or conflict, and they're not emotionally always tuned into the, uh, the child's world. Mm -hmm. And that can certainly create anxiety in a very young person. And that can persist over a long period of time if not addressed. But look, I'm, as a therapist, of course, I believe things can be addressed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in the field. Okay. So I think this can definitely be rectified. Uh, now, separation anxiety uh, is also something that can come back when you're going through a difficult time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, although... People say, like, generally people will grow out of the separation anxiety by the time they start preschool years. But we do know preschool years, especially the kindergarten year, children do experience some separation. 
but it doesn't last enough, long enough to actually qualify a diagnosis. You know, a couple of weeks and then it kind of goes away, people settle in. Uh, in terms of like, but we do know that adolescents can go through separation anxiety because they're going through a lot of changes, they're trying to fit in, and they, the hallmark of a good secure attachment is that the child goes away, they explore, they wander, they find themselves, but when they are challenged, they go back to the secure base. So separation anxiety can be seen as like something that can recur over time. And when you're going through some difficult things, you may want the security and the safety of the family you have known or an attachment figure you have known, and you might seek more comfort. And I believe it is sometimes very important to let it settle naturally. Uh, you know, if, if, if we don't really pathologize it, because it is a normal human condition that we want safety and security, and we say like um, some people may, for example, have an accident and uh, they are going through a recovery program themselves. They're not able to function the way they were. They might really want to become, they may become automatically a bit clingy to the attachment figure. Mm -hmm. So like that's a normal phase of adjustment as well. Um, but it can be identified as separation anxiety. Um, I just wanted to sort of see how um, separation anxiety can manifest during adulthood, but also what role do intervening experiences play in helping to, I guess, mallow those feelings of anxiety that might reappear after a triggering event? Yeah, so definitely, like, you know, there is a whole range of psychosocial factors that, that affect the separation anxiety, but it also affects your own identity and how you see yourself as well. So if you have some, some really good, strong protective factors, and for that, by that I mean, for example, you have a really good network of friends who you can rely on. Because that reliance on a person is really important, right? So if you have a group of friends that you can rely on, or if you are really academically achieving really well and you're happy with your status, if you are maybe more independent and you're earning and you are feel that you don't really have to rely on anyone, all of those factors are really important in forming your identity. So if you have those protective factors, separate, the early attachment becomes less relevant. But I suppose that coming back to like forming new relationship, which is a part of, you know, late teenage years, early university years and all that, forming intimate relationships with uh, partners, um, all of those can trigger, like, you know, if you're, if you're interested in someone, you're giving them a call and they're ignoring you constantly, right? What happens then, if you have a poor attachment, anxious attachment in the early years, that can get triggered and you feel, maybe I'm not really worth it, mm -hmm. you know? So it does affect, I mean, those early memories do stay with you. Hopefully that they don't really shape your whole identity. But when you are forming new relationships and particularly with an, an intimate partner, those things can get triggered very easily as well. And I think that that's where I see in my clinic when I, get people, young adults who have been in a relationship or it's not going the way they think they're going, they come back and they say, I think it's related something to what I've been ex experienced as a child. Um, and it's interesting to know that they are trying to really find why do they behave the way they behave. I think that is so interesting that you say that uh, because I think one part of why I feel so interested in attachment theory is that I found, like, reflecting on myself, that my attachments with my friends, for example, is very different 
um, to the attachment that I form with like a romantic partner because um, I find it a lot more easy to have those insecure kind of attachments when it does come to like a significant other. Like thinking back onto it myself, I think it's so strange how um, all of a sudden I'm in this new kind of relationship and I thought that I would be attached to this other person in the same way that I would with my friends and my parents and I wouldn't have thought myself to be um, someone who personally experienced so much like anxious attachment but then that happens and I'm like oh where did this come from it's like a surprise so I think it's so interesting that you mentioned that there's these other factors that help you mediate those potential like early attachment learnings that you had and when something like you know a different kind of romantic uh, attachment appears that changes and it resurfaces I think for me that already I'm like wow explains so much (laughs) makes so much sense um and I guess like I think for a lot of people who have especially with all this popularization, have realised that maybe they don't want to be exhibiting these kind of behaviours and they've seen it kind of negatively impact themselves. I guess, how can we kind of go about unlearning these behaviours if it's even something that can be unlearned? From your perspective, obviously, like being a psychologist, what is your experience with that? And how can therapy kind of play a role in us unlearning these behaviours and becoming more healthy? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting and relevant uh, kind of it leads us to the therapeutic realm. Mm -hmm. So there are so many new therapies that have been developing and I know schema focused is one of them. It's not very new, but it is one of those therapies that say, okay, schemas are those long held beliefs that shape our connection with the world, how we see the world. And it is based on uh, the beliefs we have developed over a number of years, but particularly in our childhood. And people come to me, young people, and they're one of the schemas that they have is like fear of abandonment and they feel they will they will be left alone. And there's a fear of rejection as well. There's another schema, fear of being unloved. These are all these schemas. People are now, as I said, it's in pop language. It's been pop culture. So people are aware of it. Uh, so these uh, therapies, and then there are therapies about personality disorders as well. So one of the things about not having a good attachment is people can become emotionally very reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we see, and it is so commonly now described, like emotional dysregulation is another term that people are very familiar with. So when you are in an intimate relationship or even in a very good friendship relationship and there is a high level of expressed emotion that's generally coming from not the actual situation that has happened then and there, but something that is triggered and your response to that is really much more than it needs to be. So first of all, of course, becoming aware of it is really important. And then also it is because it is a two-way, relationship is a two-way process. What is the interaction happening between the couple is really important. It's also important not to really take on all the responsibility of the interaction on yourself, which people who have poor attachment tend to do that because they will say, oh, it's just my, it's my business, it's my fault, it's my history. But that other person has the capacity to make you feel secure. So something is happening there as well. So not to really underestimate the power of here and now and what is happening now. Also, there's a high level of, I suppose, awareness about complex PTSD. Complex PTSD is actually experiencing negative experiences at the hand of the primary caregiver. And it goes on for years and years and years. And, you know, somebody who's never really seen anything else, they may think it's normal. And they may develop a lot of challenges and difficulties. They may be emotionally very dysregulated. They may be um, reacting in every situation and leading to a lots of relationship breaks up. And they have got no clue what's going on with me. Why am I like that? Mm-hmm. But when you actually really explore it, you think, okay, this person is actually suffering from complex PTSD. 
So, uh, so those those kind of diagnoses and the treatment strategies, like you know, uh, as I said, schema focused therapy. There is um, a research by Wollongong University, not three, but maybe five, six years ago, and that was about addressing personality disorders, especially in relation to the parents who have personality disorders, and then they are basically giving the same kind of difficult experiences to their children. So, so that it, it becomes an intergenerational trauma as well. So those things are telling me that, look, attachment is still a very relevant, very important aspect of our development and needs to be perhaps, you know, given special attention. Yeah. That's really fascinating that you brought up the point of um, attachment theory, uh, sorry, attachment styles or, or trauma being intergenerational. Um, and I know I think Felicity wanted to talk about this as well, but... Um, in terms of this generational um, handover, I guess, do you is that something that is sort of observed um, more in, in populations, say, that where the previous generation has lived through a particularly traumatic experience like a war or having to, to leave their home country, for example, and then that trauma being passed down even, um, I guess, without realising to the next generation? Yes, look, trauma is really an interesting topic because it depends on the person's own capacities and resilience. In my practice, I have seen more trauma with people who have had actually stable upbringing, like from from that perspective, like have they haven't experienced any war, they haven't been a refugee, they haven't arrived here on boats, any of those things, and they become very resilient. And then when they feel the safety of the, the country, they actually really flourish. But there are traumas within the families, like family violence that you might see that goes on for years and years and years. I suppose that kind of a war trauma is a communal as well. Mm -hmm. You share it with a larger group of people. And then if you are dislocating or you are leaving your own country, that is also quite a shared experience with other people. But uh, the shame that comes with the family violence, for example, is very personal. It's very secret mm -hmm. and people can experience it and they don't know how to define it. So in my practice, more more often than not, the intergenerational trauma that I experience, that I come across, is more limited to your immediate family. Yeah, and yes, we do have like you know, maybe they some Aboriginal population also, and that the story of like stolen generation kind of continues, and that is, I think, very strongly imparted as well. That is still a very kind of a current topic in the Aboriginal communities. Um, but other than that, I think uh, a lot of just mainstream family, household people, um, and people, I suppose, can have domestic violence. They can have um, violence in intoxication, drug and alcohol issues, mental illness. Um, all of that stuff, you know, is definitely a strong factor and a much more commonly seen. I think that's really interesting, actually, in the sense that trauma can be shared, but it also can be something that's so secretive. And the fact that it is such an individual experience that feels like there's a taboo to talk about um, plays so much into the experience of the trauma itself. I think it's actually really interesting. It's, um, and I guess it could happen to anyone. And we don't know, like, what's happening on people for people behind closed doors. Yeah. I think what was also interesting, because we were talking about, you know, how generations might experience like this generational communal shared trauma, right? 
um, and how that can affect attachment styles, for example. Could you speak on what role culture kind of plays in formation of attachment styles um, or, you know, just how these things kind of surface later on in the future? Yes, yeah, definitely. Culture does play a very big role and experience of trauma or the definition of trauma does differ from culture to culture in in a cultural context. I mean, and from a, I suppose, a practitioner concept, we have a definition of trauma. We have got criteria of trauma. All of that still remains that. But how a person experiences it is quite different from, like, you know, uh, Far East Asian families um, to Caucasian families to African families to Middle Eastern families, because some of the things are just cultural practices that they're used to, and it's such a part of their identity that somebody else might see that, that wow, like this person is living in a kind of an abusive environment. But for that family, for that person, it's not an abusive environment. It is just the way to be, it is their identity as well. So you've got to really um, make sure that you are understanding where the person is coming from, because, you know, one of the things about having the Western lens, and I've been obviously trained here and have that Western lens, I can define somebody like that, and I can maybe, okay, let's, let's take a scenario. I'm horrified at what they're going through, for example, and I in, enable them and I encourage them and I get them to leave their family home and all of that, but then I'm leaving them in an actual vacuum as well. So we've got to really be very mindful that we are doing any kind of trauma work in a very safe way and within what the person is desiring to achieve and how they're going to be supported in that. So uh, I think, you know, that's an important part of therapy. Yeah. But it is different and I don't want to really pick any one single culture <laughs> to talk about them. But I do, I have like currently, I'm working in quite a lot of East Asian families as well. And their definition of culture really hits a higher threshold because whatever they may have gone through is a lot more difficult in the past. From a Western point, they may, may present as minimizing it. Mm. But for them, that's what the reality has been. Absolutely. I think I definitely resonate with those differences. I was talking to someone at the Mupa Cocktail Networking Night, actually, um, and especially with a shared kind of East Asian culture and the idea of, like, moving out as a solution, a very kind of Western, in a Western kind of country, moving out being a very viable kind of option and independence, et cetera, um, isn't as applicable to, I think, East Asian cultures um, in the sense that family is such a big thing um, and moving out isn't just a show of independence but could be a show of going against the family, for example. And there's a lot of, like, solutions, a lot of, like you said, like things that you can enable your clients to do that doesn't mean the same thing in one culture that doesn't in another culture. Um, so I think that was a really nice kind of side note, um, side kind of conversation we had here. Um, but I guess coming back to attachment styles. Um, in terms of another factor that can influence attachment styles, um, coming back to the point of childhood that we touched on at the start, um, how about dynamics with different siblings? Like if you do have um, lots of siblings, we always have this idea of there being a difference between the oldest, middle and youngest child in a family. How do their um, relationships influence attachment styles, not just with their parents? Or is that more of sort of a, a myth that we've come about? Uh, no, I think I think there is some, I I'm, I'm, can't say that I have a lot of research evidence for that, but certainly from a systemic perspective, so we are now talking about a family system, um, the, there is, and this is coming from a, 
a system theory, not from the psychopathology uh, background, but a system theory, that um, the old, the child who is the firstborn can tend to have a lot of focus of their parents. So they're quite securely attached or very anxiously attached, depending on the parenting style. The child who has more focus, more attention, more kind of scrutiny can develop symptoms of an anxiety because they absorb the parental anxiety a lot more. And usually that's the firstborn. So in terms of birth order, because they have the most attention, they're also securely attached. They're also less likely to rock the boat as well. They will kind of toe the line of the family values and all that. Second child generally is more freer because it is less focused. Parents are less anxious. Um, they let the child have some breathing space. The child is more explorative uh, and they develop slightly differently, but they can be highly competitive towards the firstborn because they're the younger one. They're always trying to match up to the firstborn because they want to do the same things, even if they might be 10 years difference, but they want to do the same thing. So they can become a lot very competitive in their personalities. And the third child is the poor child, forgotten child. Sorry, <laughs> maybe you can cut that out. Just coming back to the birth order, it does make a difference. And it makes a difference also because the parental sense of adequacy as a parent increases as they continue to you know, have more children. That's very interesting. I mean, for me, I'm sort of in a bit of a unique position there where I have a younger brother, but there's 13 years between us. So it's it's very interesting for me now to observe how he's sort of forming a certain attachment style um, and the way in which my parents are interacting with him that is perhaps a bit different in terms of the, like they might be less anxious than they were with me being the firstborn. Um, and the fact that so much time has elapsed as well, it's it's really interesting to see how you know, I wonder if they responded in the same way when I did the same thing when I was a child, um, just because they haven't been in that space for a long time. So it's mm. it's a fascinating topic, I think. Um, yeah, it is. And and again, those intervening factors, you know, where they are right now, like economically, socially, how settled they are, do they have stresses of, uh, you know, jobs or not, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things also affect. So it's never really just the birth order. I think there is some some things that can perhaps be related to birth order but in theory human beings are complex and it's always a you know it's always an interaction between different factors uh, and and things have changed i suppose within the last 5 10 years you know there's a so much different social media platforms that have come come on board and uh, there's again so much information that you have it at the, in the palm of your hands that you know that can be very comforting to a parent even if they remain as anxious but they can just really tune in and see what they need to do. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say that in itself alone, birth order makes a huge difference. I think it makes a difference between the relationship of the the siblings, mm-hmm. um, but parenting is, I suppose, a mixture of many things, yeah. I think that's so interesting that you talk about like parents' anxiety as well, because I think so much when we talk about or we think about attachment styles, we don't really humanize, at least on my end, like we don't really see the parent as someone who's also experiencing anxiety and like confusion and not being sure like um, the first time raising a child what to do. But I think hearing that perspective is so interesting because they're human beings as well and they're going through so much that we don't see because we're a child, you know, a little baby um, that now in hindsight, like would have been really hard and would have really affected the way that they were raising us and how that kind of imparted um, behaviors that we kind of then consolidate into attachment styles. So thank you for bringing that up. I think what you mentioned in terms of where, you know, 
we can talk about birth order, but it doesn't necessarily have a universal effect that's same with everyone. And again, it's such a complex experience, attachment and being raised um, by parents and that kind of stuff. I think we do have this tendency where we do really want to categorize ourselves as, oh, I'm either, you know, this MBTI or I'm this you know, astrology sign or I am the eldest child and the youngest child. And this means that I must be this, this, this and this. Um, it's like a checklist. Um, I guess I think recently or like not even recently, but I think in our generation that's cropped up a lot more I think especially with social media um and I don't know I think this is kind of relevant to attachment styles as well in the sense that I don't think we only oh, can correct me on this as well of course um but I don't think we can kind of label ourselves as oh I'm always going to be having this anxious style with everyone because that is who I am now um I guess on your end do you think you know diagnosing ourselves um and kind of putting labels onto ourselves what kind of effect do you think that can have both positive and negative especially since I think it's happening so much more in our generation with this heightened awareness that we were mentioning earlier diagnosing or having a label is the positives of um, doing something like that is of course you can really just understand and feel okay I'm not alone um, it is a condition it does have its limits it does color my view of world um, it does help pave way for more interventions. You can find somebody who can help you identify those ways of relating that always pop up. And, you know, you say, oh, well, because I'm anxious, I always do that. I think the negatives are, from my perspective, like making that an excuse to not develop further. Well, because I have this, then I can't do that, you know, because I'm really anxious, so I can't really form relationships. You know, I think challenges are there in everyone's life and as long as you know you can do it with good supports you know you do have to live in this world and that's I think is the negative of it on one hand I think being in psychology discipline and practicing disciplines both in hospital settings and private settings and all that I do feel that there is a very strong push to de um what do you call it um destigmatize and and you know, spread this knowledge as like common everyday language that you see now in pop culture and everything. But on the other hand, there is also a very high focus on diagnosing as well because it leads to certain uh, benefits at times, uh, certain concessions, certain funding groups and all of that. So there is like two things that are parallelly growing uh, and can be really confusing for a person. So I, I do think, you know, having it, having a diagnosis and even if you do meet the criteria to seeing that as an opportunity to say, okay, I know these are my kind of, you know, sore points. <laughs> these are my trigger points. What can I do to actually avoid repeating them again and again so they don't develop my, or my personality is not just defined by those would be really great. Yeah. I think that's a really lovely like message of hope for a lot of people who have formed perhaps sort of insecure attachment styles or feel like their um, negative earlier experiences define who they are. Um, and as someone who I'm very happy to share, like I live with anxiety, quite high anxiety levels most of the time, um, it's very reassuring to hear that there, there are things you can do to change the way in which you've sort of been conditioned to see the world or the way in which you've come to see the world from your own experiences. So, um, yeah, I think it does provide, as we talked about, 
I think in a previous episode, some level of, I guess, confirmation bias, knowing that you fit into this category and that provides a sense of reassurance, but it can also be quite limiting. So it's it's important to understand, as you mentioned, that you can step out of that and you can change and, and create a better future for yourself. Um, I think that's a really nice note to kind of end on. Um, I think with so much popularisation of all these attachment styles and psychological theories, um, just keeping in mind exactly the message that we've kind of ended on here today. So thank you so much for coming and joining us, Amina. It's been a really great time. Um, I guess if you were to leave us with one last advice. Be positive, keep growing, surround yourself with positive people who will support your growth. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you.